Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. The biggest problem, of course, was the harassment and the verbal abuse and moving from class to class by uh, a group of students who I think were the core of uh, the resistance that didn't matter what we did, uh, they were opposed to it. It got to the point that a lot of it I tuned out. I thought for a while, since I only had one year there, I would be like Jackie Robinson or one of the other individuals who uh, uh, was breaking through the glass ceiling and that all I needed to do was to keep my head buried in my books, complete that year, and I would have accomplished something that they said couldn't be done to have somebody black to graduate from Little Rock Central High School. That's Ernest Green. In 1957, he, along with eight other African-American students, integrated Little Rock Central High School three years after the Supreme Court ruled segregation unconstitutional in public education. A year later, in 1958, Green would become the first African-American graduate of the school. Today we revisit that period in U.S. history with someone who lived it in a personal and poignant conversation with Mr. Green. Dear, I know this conversation was of personal importance to you. Yeah, it was, because, you know, this interview came about after Mr. Green saw that I had mentioned his friendship with my late father in a AAA World Magazine article I wrote. We had so many questions for him because there were many knowledge gaps about the Little Rock Nine and school desegregation, and frankly, many other actors in the civil rights movement we didn't we knew very little about and certainly we weren't taught these things in school what i actually knew about the little rock nine my dad shared with me but my understanding of mr green's role in the civil rights movement was limited as a result we focused on his life journey because that is also a travel experience perhaps next time we will focus on his travel experiences for now, we will share his firsthand experience with school desegregation in Arkansas during the Civil Rights Movement. Here's our conversation with Ernest Green. Ernest Green, I'm so excited to meet you. Thank you so much for joining World Footprints. My pleasure. I want to ask you, you know, I've been doing some research and the things that I've read, I thought I... I was shocked because there's a lot that I don't know. So I kind of want to start a little bit from uh, from the beginning, because what we were told in growing up and what we've learned throughout the year, you know, I'm learning new things as I as I researched what yeah. happened. It's my understanding that the integration of Little Rock Central High was meant to be like the first experiment following the landmark Brown versus Board of Education uh, decision. Little Rock and the state of Arkansas had decided that uh, they were going to comply with the Supreme Court decision. A number of southern states and uh, school districts had resisted it. There were a couple of smaller communities than Little Rock. Clinton, Tennessee was one in which I think they had riots out to prevent 
two or three uh, African-American students from attending there. Central High School and Little Rock represented the largest school district below the Mason-Dixon line that had agreed to comply with the 54 decision. Even though it was three years afterwards, most of the Southern communities were trying to figure out how to resist it. It's like Donald Trump, you know. There's a brick wall in front of you, yet he uh, he refuses to recognize that things had changed. And my view of the um, when the opportunity occurred, I was the only one of the nine that was a senior. Mm-hmm. And most of my colleagues, m- most of my classmates, rather, who the school board went through a screening. They w- we were the transfer students from. Horace Mann, which was the uh, black high school, to Central. For me, it was it was a resource issue. Central had a lot more scientific equipment and physics and chemistry, and the we call the sciences these days were uh, up to date equipment for students to try out. Uh, so it just seemed to make sense to me that. Central High School was better equipped than the school that I was going to. Mm-hmm. And this was an opportunity to be able to improve my exposure. And as I saw it, education was springboard to a better life, probably middle-class existence at that point, and um, a chance to um, be able to improve what I could do as I got older in terms of opportunity. The first day that you went to Little Rock Central, what was that like? We, you know, we've seen images in uh, movies, you know, on the, the, the screen. But- yeah, well, well, it was supposed to have been a, um, a relatively quiet day. The um, governor and the city of Little Rock and the federal government and all had agreed on a deal. And Faubus at the last minute turned around and double-crossed everybody by calling out the National Guard. They had expected that we would be, the nine of us would be fairly well received, that the students had had an opportunity during the course of the two or three weeks before we arrived to accept us. And when the governor announced the day before school was to open, and he was calling out the National Guard, it caught everybody off base. I think most of the people who were out in front of Central, some of the same ones out in front of uh, Donald Trump's residence today, they're, they're the cousins of, uh, of the Trump supporters. It was all unexpected. Little Rock prided itself on being a, quote, moderate Southern city. This was not going to occur in Birmingham, uh, and Jackson, expectations there were zero. Little Rock regarded itself as uh, a moderate Southern city hmm. and that uh, they were ready to accept it. And, and one of the reasons that we thought things would go quietly, the med school for the University of Arkansas had accepted a few black students. The law school had admitted uh, two or three uh, black undergraduates there were some northern school districts in Arkansas 
that had admitted a few black students. In fact, Dale Bumpers, who's a former senator, was secretary to a um, school district that was near Fort Smith. I mean, all of this is uh, Arkansas lore. There were places within the state of Arkansas in which the expectation was that this was going to go quietly. A few people would be concerned about it, but for the most part, the previous history would allow them to uh, to bite the bullet and, and admit us. Mr. Green, that would probably surprise a lot of people to hear that things were expected to go well, given often what we hear about life in the South, uh, Jim Crow segregation. So give us a sense of what was going on in your hometown of Little Rock, because clearly you and the other students and the other people in the community had a comfort zone, were okay being part of integration and being part of this grand experiment. So speak to that. As I said, the city of Little Rock was regarded itself as a moderate Southern city. Jim Crow clearly existed. You were the restaurants and movies and public accommodation in which uh, the rigidity of, uh, of Jim Crow was in place. But Arkansas was such that northern part of Arkansas, where you had small numbers of African-Americans living, didn't pay much attention to Jim Crow laws where the University of Arkansas is and Fayetteville and Fort Smith. And as you, um, I'm sure, found out on the article you did on civil rights, that there are some cities and towns in the South that were ready to change because trying to maintain two school districts and this and the, the cost of all that was more than they could handle. In fact, I always said that part of the reason that slavery collapsed is middle-class white families couldn't continue to feed themselves and the slaves at the same time, and that the pressure of the the economics of it was Mm -hmm. a, a big factor of changing attitudes. Little Rock was in that uh, category. For instance, we had one football stadium, which was at Central. The way that we got to accommodate Jim Crow is that the black school played on Saturday, the white school played on Friday. Now, what happened if, you know, the schedules got jumbled up? Are they, they won the conference and they needed another date? You, you had all this adjustment of Jim Crow. The other thing was that, that Little Rock, as I mentioned, had admitted to the law school and the med school and the other professional schools, a few black students. And um, they figured out that they could accommodate a few students without having to change everything. But our attending Central meant that the old way was collapsing. I'll never forget that the um, local newspaper, when the Supreme Court decision of 54 was announced, they ran an editorial that said this was going to change the face of the South forever. And I thought to myself, I said, that's great. I think the face of the South needs to be changed. If I have an opportunity to to go to that school, I want to attend it. I passed it practically every day. It was in kind of in my neighborhood. I had uh, relatives. My mother was a teacher. 
my aunt was a guidance counselor for the black high school and they were aware of courses and the range of material that white students had you know getting prepared to go to college all of that and i felt that central was a place that was a good springboard for me to go lo and behold 57 they decided that this was going to be the first years of desegregation they submitted a plan to the to uh, washington that said we want to do this gradually and the gradual was to start at the high school level in 57 and each year thereafter desegregate to the who is gap they? of the entire system who is well, they the government and you said they submitted a plan uh, Little Rock, the school board. Okay. And they were being sued by the NAACP to uh, have uh, faster integration of the, uh, of the school system. The person that really pushed the hardest was a woman who was president of the Arkansas NAACP, Daisy Bates. She didn't get the recognition that she should, but she saw Little Rock as a... Uh, as one of the first wedges in the, the brick wall to resist. And uh, the Arkansas NACB sued the school board for faster utilization of the, uh, of the Supreme Court decision. As a kid, when, when the decision first came down, the first thought that came across my mind was how are they going to implement it? I didn't see that these communities were just going to, out of the goodness of their their soul agree to that. There were a few people like Daisy and others who were pushing hard to have it implemented. But for the most part, a lot of people were uncertain. Black folks were as uncertain as the white community about uh, how much change they wanted to occur at, at that point in time. I'd like for you to give us a sense of what you experienced day-to-day attending classes at Little Rock Central from your interaction with teachers, with students, with everything that we know goes into attending school. What were days like and what did you face inside the classroom? It took the Airborne, the 101st Airborne of the United States Army to get us into school Mm -hmm. for three weeks the governor used the um, National Guard to keep us out. Since I was the only senior out of the nine, I was worried about graduation. You know, I signed up for all these college courses, uh, entry courses for um, my last year. My view was that if I didn't get into class soon, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't pass that year. So I had that pressure. There were a few teachers who tried to be helpful to us. Most of them were like Richard Nixon said, the silent majority. Don't bother me and I won't bother you. So I had to. The biggest problem, of course, was the harassment and the verbal abuse and moving from class to class by uh, a group of students who I think were the core of uh, the resistance that didn't matter what we did. Mm -hmm. Uh, they were opposed to it. It got to the point that a lot of it I tuned out. I thought for a while, since I only had one year there, I would be like Jackie Robinson or one of the other individuals who uh, 
uh, was breaking through the glass ceiling and that all I needed to do was to keep my head buried in my books, complete that year, and I would have accomplished something that they said couldn't be done to have somebody black to graduate from Little Rock Central High School. Yeah, in fact, you were the only, the first and the only African-American student, and certainly the only one from the the original group of nine of you to, to graduate. Well, the next year, the governor closed all the high schools. It almost seems like uh, seeing some of that uh, with how Trump is uh, responding to uh, Biden's uh, uh, win. But they closed all the schools the next year. And the year after that, two of the original nine, Carlotta Lanier and Jefferson Thomas, graduated from Central. Of the nine of us, that was six girls, three boys. We had uh, five in the um, 11th grade, myself as senior, and the other three were in the 10th grade. I thought once we got into class and met a few students, of course, that somebody would be accepting so accept us. Uh, it turned out that there were a few students who stepped forward, but they received a great deal of harassment mm -hmm. from the resistors, the segregationists, their businesses were threatened. The idea was that we were going to prove that this couldn't work. And yet, all nine of us graduated from high school. We got two PhDs out of the group. Eight of us are still around. We had one to pass. Out of the, um, the nine of us, uh, we did fairly well. Yes. This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers. Here's more of our conversation with Ernest Green, who helped integrate Little Rock Central High School as one of the Little Rock Nine. He became the first African-American graduate of that school. I know um, with your, at your graduation, Martin Luther King actually attended the ceremony too. What was that like for you to have that validation? Well, I didn't know he was, uh, <laughs> he was in the audience until, until the end of the ceremony. He was close friends with uh, the president of the HBCU and Pine Bluff. In fact, he spoke at the uh, AM&N's um, graduation, and he had been close to uh, Mrs. Bates and a couple of other ministers in Little Rock. And he indicated at the end of the service he got that he wanted to witness my graduation. So I like to point out to folks that I'm probably one person out of a zillion that Dr. King attended his high school graduation. It was quite an honor. Uh, we had chance to talk a little bit after the ceremony. But you know, when you're 17, finishing high school, the last thing you want to do is talk to a bunch of adults. <laughs> <laughs> you want to uh, 
be able to have a party with your classmates. I did have opportunity uh, later to uh, sit down and talk to him a number of times. In fact, the person who was uh, assisting him was Andy Young. I had both Andy Young and Dr. King at my graduation, which was a real high honor. Yes, indeed. I want to talk to you about your your time in my home state, uh, Michigan. So after high school, you know, I was going to ask you initially, what took you up to to Lansing? And then I learned that you received a scholarship to Michigan State. Uh, Yeah, John, John Hanna, during the course of the year, in fact, around December of that school year, Dr. Hanna made available a scholarship or offered me a scholarship to Michigan State. I always said I had to uh, I had to look on the map to find out where East Lansing was. <laughs> uh, it was not a place that I had a lot of familiarity with. I was honored to accept his scholarship. And um, fall of 1957, I began my freshman year there. In fact, uh, I'm just completing a uh, some notes on uh, one of my classmates just passed recently, Herb Adderley who was a football player at Michigan State. They're having service on his passing. Herb and I were charter members of the um, Omega Psi Phi fraternity. We brought it to Michigan State. You know a little bit about that. I do. <laughs> I, I, I'm the proud daughter of a Q, and I think, and, and that's actually where you you met my my dad. Is right. Yeah, we were we were all in the fraternity together. Well. Herb, uh, there were six of us that that chartered the uh, fraternity. I was in my junior year, March of 61, that we uh, put the fraternity on, on state's campus. But mm-hmm. I really found that um, the set of contacts that I had at Michigan State, for the most part, followed me throughout my, uh, my career. In fact, last year, I went back as a grand marshal of homecoming. The university is, you know, has always kept me in the middle. And there are a bunch of people besides those in the fraternity uh, stay in touch with Joel Ferguson. and, mm-hmm. and Gregory, was Gregory? Uh, uh, yeah, Eaton. Gregory Eaton. Yes. Yeah, he, he, he wasn't in the queue, but Gregory, we go to all of the basketball games and everything and uh, stay in touch with one another. So, in fact... I think the uh, yeah, Lansing was the home of Malcolm X. Yes. We uh, used to uh, leave campus and go here, hear Malcolm speak when uh, he was uh, ahead of the mosque in, in Lansing. I'm very appreciative that uh, Hannah sought me out. Hopefully I'm a good Spartan and uh, it's been good for me. Well, you mentioned all of these Spartans uh, from Herb <laughs> Adderley, who uh, you mentioned we just lost a uh, Hall of Famer, Green Bay Packers. If we think of Dr. Clifford Wharton, Gene Washington, Spartan football player who, who made quite a name for himself, and Bubba Smith. So that campus, and I say this as someone who's a Wolverine. I, uh, I'm impressed, uh, actually. <laughs> there is so much rich history from the Black experience from that time, and you were part of that. And so I would like for you to give us a sense of what you got out of being there. And Well, I think, I think two or three things. Obviously, 
the moment you hit the campus, you recognize that there's a small number of people of color there. I think we all, at least many of us, figured out that we wanted to take advantage of what the university offered. We didn't want to flunk out, wanted to be able to uh, indicate that we could master the work that they put in front of us. And that what we really needed to do was to hold up each other Mm. and figure out how we got through that experience and uh, be able to benefit from it. I mean, her All-American Hall of Famer, uh, all of the initial Super Bowls, he was a standout in it. In fact, I said Herb Adderley um, developed the uh, defensive back position. He could run faster backwards than most people could run forward. (laughs) But it was all of that that we decided how you uh, supported somebody on campus besides yourself to be able to say that at the end of it, you got through it. And and when you look back at the Michigan State alum, uh, many of them were average students. They learned how to study, how to get themselves together with help from other African-American students and that to make certain that nobody could say that this was going to defeat them that they were going to figure out how to make this work and utilize it. And I think for the most part, they did. I, I was uh, president of the campus NACP for two years. Even though the university, you know, had uh, East Lansing had um, restrictive covenants in housing. And of course, we used to um, picket city of East Lansing all the time. I said that uh, even though I got a scholarship from Dr. Hanna, many times we were picketing outside his window of the (laughs) residence. So it didn't stop our student involvement. And this, of course, was Vietnam. This was the height of the civil rights movement. This was when John Lewis and others were trying to get the right to vote in Alabama and going across the Pettus Bridge. It was a period of time also in which we felt that we could make a contribution. I want to ask you about life in Michigan, because one of the things my dad used to say to me is that he preferred the South in a lot of ways, because at least the lines were clear. The lines were were clear. You had had Jim Crow and specific rules and regulations. Well, clearly, I understand that, but... Our effort was to try to destroy those lines wherever they were, north and south. Because it was in East Lansing didn't mean you didn't run into racism and uh, attitudes of some white students. I I remember one year, the guy didn't want a room with me. I said, great, I have a room to myself. (laughs) (laughs) You guys figure out who you're going to put in here, but for right now, I'm enjoying this uh, dorm room that's uh, much larger because there's only one person in it. I think we educated a lot of people because we came with an attitude that we could conquer this. It wasn't, in many cases, the easiest thing, but also most of us were geared towards the future, mm-hmm. how we were going to develop families, be able to uh, show that we had attain whatever the um, book knowledge was and apply it into a, uh, 
uh, setting at uh, East Lansing. Often when we speak about civil rights, it's often put into the context of what were the benefits to Black Americans. You had the experience of coming to Washington to work under Jimmy Carter, who came from the South, who benefited in terms of his acceptability to uh, the nation because of the changes that took place in the South. Talk about that journey to Washington to really find yourself working here as a fellow Southerner. My uh, journey to Washington really came through A. Philip Randolph and the Randolph Institute. I developed a program that put African-American young men and a few young women into apprenticeship programs, uh, skilled trades, which I think is really still needed now. The secretary to uh, President Carter was a fellow, Ray Marshall, who was a Southerner, grew up in Mississippi, taught at the University of Texas. He and I had done a number of projects together. And when he was selected as secretary of labor, he invited me to become his assistant secretary. When I first met President Carter, he said that the two people that he had contemplated to become secretary of labor, both said that they wanted me as their assistant secretary, which I thought that was was a good way to get to meet the president. But he was always very supportive of of the work that we did. We had uh, projects. I was in charge of the CETA program, Comprehensive Employment Training Act, which was uh, outcome from uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. I found my four years at the Labor Department to be fascinating. We we did a number of things. I bump into people today who uh, got trained by CETA and uh, acknowledge that it was uh, it was very helpful to their life and their livelihood. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be smartest cookie on the street to realize that income and uh, jobs are really the foundation that we still need uh, in our community to be able to move health issues, other options, um, availability of education for our kids. All of that, it seems to me, stems from having a decent job. Yes, that and and certainly grocery stores, you know, the food deserts in America. Grocery stores, doctors, I mean, all times. If you were to leave a legacy letter to your great, great, great grandchildren, what would you say to them? Well, I'd say one that uh, don't give up. Probably that's six or seven generations going forward that I would not be surprised that there would be some people who still have antiquated visions about what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. And that more than likely, you'd have to prove to some that you can handle a range of things. Secondly, that you really need to continue to support other black and brown people and help them get whatever leg up you've accomplished. Look at how you're going to help somebody else. And then the third one is to uh, recognize the richness of this place and uh, try to get as much benefit from it as you can. 
I think if you do those three or four things, you'll have a rich and rewarding life. Oh, thank you, Mr. Green. You may not realize this, but today is my dad's birthday. He would have been 82. <laughs> And you've given me a gift on his birthday. Just uh, well, I'm, I'm happy I could. I will turn 80 in September, so we're a few years between us. But uh, I'm glad able to give you a gift. Thank you. I'm a September baby too. So all right. I say we rock. We rock. Dara, you know, I know this wasn't a typical travel show, but his life journey, as I said at the top, is almost a travel experience. I mean, surely it was a journey through the civil rights movement. And I found what he shared so powerful that this will be very inspiring to many people listening to this interview. What I take away from the interview with Mr. Green is that Racism, when we really get down to it, is just plain stupid. I just can't wrap my head around. You've got the students who integrated the Little Rock Central High School who wanted nothing more than to get an education. And what they had to go through, what they were greeted with at school, what other students uh, were told in, in terms of being friendly towards them or how the teachers treated them, When you really get down to it, it's just sad that so many people like Mr. Green had to go through this. And we've seen this play throughout history, whether it's South Africa or in our own country. And it really points to the point that we like to make about finding our common humanity. And when you listen to him, the bitterness isn't there. It was really about a desire to get an education and make the most of his opportunity, and he always did that, always looking forward, and and I really appreciate that, and, you know, this is living history for us. Right, right, and, you know, um, it was just wonderful to talk to not only one of my father's friends, but also to, to talk to somebody who paved the way for us. I mean, I went to an integrated school, as did you, and so... He actually um, helped pave that way for, for, for me, for my sisters, for certainly the next generations uh, that follow to enjoy an education, a quality education at an integrated school, which I think is a very important part of socialization. I will say the, the one thing that really surprised me was um, his comment that Little Rock itself was a moderate city and they didn't expect the pushback and, you know, the governor's calling of the troops to keep them from integrating that school. I was shocked about that because, you know, you think it's in the South and, of course, we have our preconceptions about Southern cities, Southern states. I found that comment very surprising. In closing, we'd like to leave you with these words from Kofi Annan, Nobel Peace Prize winner and former Secretary General of the United Nations. We may have different religions, different languages, different colored skin, but we all belong to one human race. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're so honored that you chose to take this adventure with us. Thank you for spending this time and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. 
This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.